feminism. Yes, feminism. It is regarded by many as the worst F-word in the region. Where does that come from? Why is it so threatening to so many? What does it mean to be a feminist activist today? And what has happened to the feminist movement on the ground? What are the challenges we face? And why is it so important to have allies in this important fight? In this episode, we're joined by one of the most passionate and eloquent advocates and feminists. Asma Khalifa is an activist, researcher, and co-founder of the Tamazight Women's Movement. She's a leading thinker on intersectional feminism, and in 2017 was named one of the 100 most influential young Africans by the Africa Youth Award, and rightfully so. A warning, this episode contains some colorful language that some listeners may find offensive. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Marwa. How are you coping with the heat wave we're having at the moment? I'm literally slowly melting away. And I apologize to listeners um, if you can hear the fan in the background. Uh, I'm not turning it off. So <laughs> it's it's really hot. No, no, I think it's uh, it's become a health and safety thing. So I'm, I'm sure people will forgive us for trying to do that. Actually, I'm quite enjoying the heat, not because it's of its physical impact, but this is kind of the closest to home I felt in a, a long, long time. Home, we have ACs at home. I don't know. In the last few, when, or the last time I was there, there we have ACs on the walls, but the power cuts doesn't mean they work. And so we're still resorting to some of the techniques of, you know, like, you know, pouring water and trying to keep cool. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very strange. So today we have another very exciting episode. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's, it's a really good one. It's a topic that's obviously close to my heart. Um, we have, what we've been doing throughout season two is trying to really look back at topics that we've discussed in season one in some instances and just really trying to break them down and looking at specifics. So, you, you, you know, you might remember that in season one, episode seven, we spoke to Leila Laudat about uh, women in conflict and, and uh, she was obviously wonderfully lucid about it. Um, as the reality on the ground in Libya continues to change, well, in Libya and around Libya, I would say, continues to change. I really want to look at how that's impacting on, you know, not the cliche general, what, how is this impacting on women kind of thing, but how it's really impacting on the work of women human rights defenders, on civil society and, um, and how it's hindering the processes there. Um, and also to just see if there's a possible way around that, but keeping in mind that we have a, a new round of the political process due to start and making sure that it gets on better footing as well. So, you know, I want to reflect on things, but I also very much want to look ahead to how we can start to change some of these conversations. I mean, we're, we're, we'll unpack this um, in the episode, but it really does upset me that um, even in this day and age, uh, we have to constantly offer this reminder, even with civil society, right? Um, with panel events and, and, and whatnot, uh, which is really inexcusable, this you know, forgetting women, um, but, also, uh, but also at the national and international level, um, how is it justified to, to really, I mean, to marginalize and exclude half of the population? You know, the point you made about panels, I always, yeah, I always find it um, so incredible when you get a panel that's got, you know, six men on it um, and they're meant to address what the Libyan situation is or it might have five men and then me and five or five men and one other woman. Um, and actually, as a, as a, you know, we try as LFJL as a policy not to be on panels unless they're, they've got parity. Um, and we have, you know, we will put out statements saying we're not attending this panel because of this. Um, but then they also, even then it's like, oh gosh, they're just being so difficult. You know, these women are being so difficult. Um, which is a word I'm learning to, um, embrace actually. And so, 
um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to really getting into this conversation and being very, very difficult. Um, yeah. So then let's get started. Our guest today is one of my favorite women defenders Libya has to offer and, and one who makes me personally proud to work alongside. Her passion and her commitment is inspiring. Asma Khalifa, who is a Libyan activist, researcher, and co-founder of the Tamazir Women Movement, a think-do tank that works on indigenous women's rights issues in Libya and North Africa. I hope I'm doing this justice, but Asma has been working in civil society on human rights, women's rights, and youth empowerment since 2011. So welcome, Asma. She's just one of my favorite Libyan women, full stop. Um, I... I really just love her energy and love being around her. So I'm really enjoying this. Um, welcome, Asma. It is so exciting to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So in the last season of Libya Matters, we had a, a really great conversation with Leila Laudat, who I'm sure you know, uh, in episode seven. And there we looked at sort of questions of inclusion and the carving of space for women in the public political sphere, among other things. What we really want to do today is sort of step in step up that conversation and really get into a bit more of the nitty gritty of what that means on the ground. Um, and as much as I hate to start with sort of very general questions about women and saying, you know, what is it like for women or expect you to talk about every kind of um, woman? Um, I, I want to, I'm still going to do it despite the fact that I judge others for doing it, but let's just have a conversation and maybe we start about looking at the practical level. What do you see at the moment when you look at Libya um, in the context of, of our conversation? Um, well, as you said, because it's difficult to generalize, I would say it depends on her location. It depends in which city town she lives. It depends on um, whatever aunt group is controlling her neighborhood. It depends on whether she's employed or not, um, who has the control over her livelihood and decision. Um, so it's their ex the experiences of women are very diverse and their challenges um, are, are similar. Of course, war um, highlights all of that and makes it even worse. And now COVID is, is um, biling up the vulnerabilities that women will have to experience. But uh, <clears throat> I would say that they all share the, it, the very um, hurtful experience of being powerless. Um, not, not Entirely, of course, I, I believe that everyone has an agency, even when they are not exercising it uh, officially um, or, or at home, which I'm sure a lot of women exercise so much agency, but we have to, we're taught to do it uh, in a very non-threatening way, very indirectly manipulative, even you could sometimes call it, um, which is a survival mechanism. I mean, I don't think it's a, a negative thing. I think it's how, we, how they've managed to survive expressing some sort of having some sort of control um and that is through not appearing to be opposing men and and uh, and voicing out loud but the, the security threats are the biggest um they all face um and i know people have these thoughts about security threats being in the streets or in while, while traveling or because of of the war and armed groups but i'm thinking about all the men who return at, to home often with ptsd symptoms a lot of the times armed and who will lash out at these women. So insecurity comes from home um, and it's quite taboo and no one wants to talk about it. Uh, but even before the war, that's where women were insecure most. And that is at home. Um, 
I think the economic situation and uh, and the issues with the banking and the power cuts are amplifying so much the challenges women have to face um, in in their everyday life. The movement is is severely restricted. Um, for human rights defenders, um, <laughs> well. I, I went to Libya in March because I had work to do. And um, within the first week, I, I ma we managed to squeeze in this workshop despite being told no. And there was this talk about before it became a pandemic. So we had this workshop with the women for two days. And already a lot canceled because they couldn't travel. Um, a, few, uh, a few had concerns about the topic we were discussing in the workshop. Um, and then there was... While we are at this at this space, we are constantly coming up with plan Bs in case someone storms and asks questions. Um, we are navigating all these logistical complexities. Which neighborhood should we contact the workshop in? Where would it be the safest? Um, and you're thinking also at the same time, you're thinking about your family because that's why we can't be unfortunately bold enough in the fight in Libya because we have family back home um, and whenever I get a threat this, despite sometimes how silly it is with all these fake names I'm like I have to call my family and I'm like checking whether they've received anything in their inbox or not or or if anyone has called them or what's going on so we're constantly are <clears throat> uh, we're constantly having these strategic plans around us in case something goes wrong. So it's the default that something would go wrong, uh, no matter how, how non-threatening the topic is. And it's, it's, I mean, it's exhausting, but at the same time, you, um, you, feel, you feel quite a bit alone. So if it wasn't for some of the women network around me, it, it would be also quite a lonesome experience because we'd all, we, despite everything, we also still don't have the social approval. We are still um, outcasts socially because we want to bring change that is, for some reason, is seen as, as a, a westernization. I'm like, you want to have elections? Where do you think that come from? <laughs> Surely not from us. Um, but for some reason, when you start talking about women, it's that's when you are indoctrinating and, and radicalizing society um, into some sort of, I don't know. I mean, because the accusations are quite often ludicrous. I mean, you, you are saying, well, I want a good representation, a better representation of women. I want accountability. I want security. And they say, well, you want women in miniskirts. I'm like... <laughs> it's not a natural conclusion, but, you know, possibly... <laughs> I want to walk on the streets. I mean, I'm not even talking about dress code. <laughs> I'm not even talking about physical autonomy and control over my own body. <laughs> I'm talking about wanting to have a stroll down the street without being harassed constantly or, or threatened or told to, I don't know. Um, in, in one of the latest harassment trends now, if the, if the guys are looking at a girl who's dressed inappropriately, they're coughing at them and saying Corona. It's so topical, you know, the kind of the innovation that some of this has. You just wish if it was directed towards something else, what we could achieve, um, you know, yeah, but the kind exactly. of sheer amount the of energy. innovation. Yeah, you know, the energy into really 
just making life so impossible for people. If you could think if that was somehow redirected, but you, you, there's so much you said that I want to pick up on. Um, I mean, what I found just as an anecdote, the, the, the comment you made about, you know, actually the best way for women is to control or to have agencies to do it through the home. And I remember um, just a very personal thing when I was uh, about to get married, a female family member, an older female family member said to me, you know, a good woman is a woman who can get her husband to do what she wants without him realizing that. Um, and I just found that so just, I mean, obviously problematic on so many levels, but also just, you know, and I was at the time I, you know, kind of shrugged it off. But as I listened to you talking, I'm like, yeah, this is part of it, you know, that you can just do it behind the scenes and not be seen. And, uh, and that, you know, I'm, I'm a bit low to kind of blame all of it on fam on the kind of home and the structures, because I think that is kind of the narrative people want is to say, well, this is the tradition, this is the culture, this is how it's done. Um, and so I, I understand that kind of, you know, the kind of element of that, but I really want to bring a little bit of the, the nuance to this, that, it, you know, we can't then outs outsource it all or say, you know what, we're not ready for this. But, you know, the other element as well, you're saying uh, that is just so fascinating is this kind of, um, you know, closing down a space on so on, on many levels and the amount of energy you expend trying to just make the logistics work um, for, for a workshop or for a conversation has got to have an, a, a, such a negative impact on on um, on activists on the ground. I mean, you might come in or we might come in um, as people who are now in the diaspora, unfortunately, with a lot of energy and willing to put in the extra work for, for that week or two. And But if you're there constantly and day after day, your life is about logistics and obstacles. How does how do you do the work? Well, that's why a lot don't. Um, and that's why a lot... Um, drop out and burn out and uh, can't continue or they they do it um, in in collaborations with municipalities and 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 uh, some maybe governmental agencies which might which I'm not saying is a negative thing but I think it's very much controlled um, and then of course you have those who do it with with uh, with international organizations and then it's it's not Libyan led Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of international organizations don't greet Libyan Libyans as partners, but as implementers. And so you don't set your own agenda, you don't set your own motives. You are doing something, and and they bile you up with all this paperwork um, and documentations, and that's extra work. That's I mean, you do. I mean, it's not there's not even opportunity for Libyan organizations to have co-funding. So all you get is six months, three months, four months, and then two months of that is done doing paperwork. I think it's very much lagging, but what what I what I'm often also quite concerned about when I'm planning these things or when I'm assisting even from distances is, is the safety from everyone else. It's, there's a huge responsibility about gathering people to have a conversation. Um, I mean, I'm not even going to to mixed gender meetings, which I was in one that was stormed by the neighbors in April in Libya. Um, and, and anyone could do that. I mean, anyone could just come and take things away from you and, and uh, threaten your dignity. And, and, and there is no there is no um, there is no outlet or, or, um, or a space that you would go in order for you to have this these conversations. And then people see civil society's role as negative and they see activists as, as useless and delusional because uh, we're not making change happen. And I'm like. There is no resources. Environment is very, very terrible, um, and 
there is there are guns and tanks and and uh, bombs all around us. I mean, and they haven't solved anything. Of course, they're never going to solve anything. But if those who have guns and tanks cannot make political change, how are you expecting us to do that with restricted meetings, with uh, two-day workshops, with five thousand dollar budgets? I mean, <laughs> it's it's very difficult and. Um, and it's hard, and the, the issues of mental health and self-care are, are also not not discussed properly. I mean, we're trying to introduce them in our workshops. I try at least to do that, but in Libya, it's still seen as as uh, it's not really understood and and what it is to pause and reflect and take time for yourself and heal. So I, I mean, it's very sad that. In, within the year, every few months, someone will disappear on me because they're burned out. And I'm like, well, talk to me. I'm here. You, I mean, take a break, take a year, take two, but come back. But some never do. And it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking for me. I mean, we do know the security risks and the challenges um, that, that you know, your, your average Libyan faces on the ground today. Um, but we also need to recognize that it's particular for activists. And then even more so when we're looking at uh, women defenders, um, there is an extra level or layer or layers of, of challenges that women face trying to um, to maintain or car- not even carve out. I mean, they have, a, a, I think at this point, a sliver of space left that they're trying to hold on to with literally dear life. And I think that there is very much and you know what you touched on and i think that we if if we could unpack that a a bit more in terms of of how that kind of um of the challenges that that are faced that are very very particular to women and and so one of the things that you had you had mentioned is you know that uh that kind of social marginalization for being, you know, being considered an activist, that that the attacks are not only physical, but there's a lot of reputational attacks that happen on women. And that uh, is almost more, um, you know, more impactful, has a greater impact and, and does cause a lot of women to then say, you know what, this is just not worth it. And 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 then withdraw from, from the space. And I think that... Um, so it's, and then it becomes these issues that I thought was very interesting that you said in terms of the even the the home, the private space. So not even the public space, but the private space is also um, comes with risks and challenges, and and no one can speak about these things because there's no one left. And so I think if you could, yeah, just unpack that a bit more in terms of how you know um, how this impacts and. You know, what's the best way forward, if any, at this point? I'm reflecting on my own experience. And I think um, in the early years of of me having a full-time job, plus going to all these protests and sometimes appearing on TV shouting, (laughs) um, I had family members who didn't speak to me. I probably haven't seen some of them for years. I was told I was too loud. Uh, too much, too intense. Why am I doing this to myself? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I doing this to myself? I'm doing this for 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 all of us. I mean, are you are you happy like this? 
And some would say yes, because of course it's the status quo, it's what's there, it's what's comfortable and known, and they could navigate that rather than, you know, they would have to be, they would have to learn and be exposed to to, um, to a new structure. And I think that is still one of our biggest hurdles reaching out all of the other Libyan women. It's the fact that the status quo is quite comfortable. Um, and how do I unsettle that is still is still something that we are learning to do. So, but yes, I mean, um, there's a lot of, emo- I think there's a lot of emotional blackmailing within Libyan families. Um, it's like, we love you, don't do this. Or why are you doing this? Or what if something happens to you? Or what if, what are people going to say? Of course, you know, or everyone knows this. <laughs> what are people going to say is the first thing that would come up in any discussion when you say, I want to do something. It doesn't matter if it's activism or if it's, you know, having a garden. <laughs> it's what people are going to say. <laughs> it is. It's like the most mundane thing. <laughs> and, um, and it and reputational damage is the social control tool of Libyans. I mean, it's um, the smearing and, the, and that's why they call us the civil society sluts, right? From 2012, that's the general term that they've named us, the Ahirat Mujtama Madani, the sluts of civil society, which is still a label that circles around. But that's exactly what they called us uh, from the beginning when we came out with banners and, and things like that, that we don't have men at home. Of course, they would attack uh, often also they would go for our siblings and fathers and husbands uh, to attack them because in that structure, the men who support are the most dangerous in Libya because if the men can support, then the rest can be recruited and converted into thinking that change is not bad. So they go after them. And I see that sometimes attacks over activism in terms of women's rights go even worse on the men who work for women's rights organizations or do projects for women's rights. Um, they go for them. And, and I mean, you get a threat, but they would go kidnap that dude and beat them up. And I have seen that happen over the years so much because he was supportive of, of women. And I'm like, wow, so they are your biggest threat <laughs> because if a man can be convinced, the rest could be, and that shouldn't, should never be obvious. Sorry to interrupt you, Asma, but it's interesting that you that you mentioned that because actually one of the other guests we hosted or we're hosting on this season is Jabir Zin, who obviously was disappeared for, you know, two years, precisely for what you say, um, for being seen as uh, pushing the agenda on on women um, and almost like he betrayed the his gender by doing this, you know. So it, it is, it is, yeah, it's such a fascinating um it's fascinatingly sophisticated targeting campaign, actually. It's not as ad hoc as we might think, and it's not as sort of um, visceral as we might think. It's very much a, well, how do we stop this? We need to go after this demographic and that demographic, and we need to ensure this one doesn't have sympathy, and we need to make sure the other one is uncomfortable. And so it, it almost feels, I mean, you know, not in the kind of literal sense systematic, but in the way it's being applied, almost systematic. Yeah, and nothing is... Nothing is random when it comes to social controlling and social engineering, even if they don't have to come and sit and talk about it. It's being done retroactively through observation because we're social beings. Of course, if we see a threat to our structure, we go for it. And while women are a threat to the structure, especially those who speak up, they do not have the same power as a man who supports or has similar ideologies because he's already in the power. He's already higher up in the hierarchy of social interactions. And he will be heard even more sometimes. Sadly, I'm very sad. I'm very <laughs> sad to say this, and I'm not uh, demeaning the threats that women human rights defenders receive. 
but he is he would be more heard um, in so many circles than a woman who speaks about ish- social issues, including um, including women's rights. That in the social hierarchy, um, he will be heard regardless. I mean, whatever whatever he says uh, would make sense to the, to to the society because he has the authority to say it. Uh, whilst you, no matter how much degrees you're piling up and how much of a good arguments that you have, um, they would still question your upbringing. They would still bring personal things. They would still point at your features, your teeth, your hair, um, <laughs> your eyeliner. I mean, if you're covering, they would go for like the nitty gritty details, like your skincare routine. So, um, so it's it's uh, for me, I, it's quite interesting to see this interaction among uh, men uh, when it comes to um, to, the, to this issue because I think the most threat that women have is not per, per se uh, the biggest threat is not per se men with guns of course that's a threat that's clear but I think it's civilian men who remain behind who are uh, feeling disadvantaged who are have not been to war, so they don't see the disruption. They don't they don't see the the change on that scale, but they want to keep things as they are. Um, and I think because they want to keep things as they are, and they want us to even sometimes go back to the good old days, as, as a lot of Libyans reminisces about the nineteen thirties and nineteen twenties. Um, that they want us to. Um, they want to. They want things to go normal, so they want to control, and I think that that is a, a larger threat. Um, and of course, they can have access to weapons in Libya, etc. They don't have to be an armed group to have access to weapons. But I see that as a large threat because if we don't deal with them, then even after the war, once um, the men who've been fighting go back home, we will have um, then a bigger resistance to us advancing our agendas because of these civilian men who remained behind trying to keep things as they are. Um, and it's extremely hard to have conversations with them when I just said mixed gender meetings are always quite controversial, no matter what. I think that even in the world of civil society, and I'm very sad to say this, there's a lot of judgmentalness about women with women's rights agendas. Um, because it's not so important right now, right? We're in a civil war, people are dying, people are displaced. Um, so why are you talking about something that everyone has it? I mean, that's that's a horrible argument, but people say it all the time. It's like, But the whole world has issues of, of domestic violence as if that justifies that it should remain so, or if that's the norm. But so we can't have even that conversation with our male peers because it's not important enough. Um, and that is, I think, um, I don't have to go into details to describe that's exactly how important we are to Libyan society. We're not important enough. We're important at home, we're important to reproduce, we're important for specific tasks, but our lives actually mean nothing. And Libyan women do not realize this. They, they a lot of the time, come back with things, but we are cherished, we are being driven around uh, we are being bought this and that, and, and we are given all these luxuries of st- re- choices to remain at home and have children. Of course, that's a very classist thing. <laughs> so women on Facebook, you know where, which social class they come from, um, who respond with such a thing. But still, to me, um, I, I don't know how to explain to them to say that your life is not important and it's not yours. Mm. Um, and I have no idea how to bring that comprehension to other women 
because I have felt it through my own experience of injustice with my own family, with my own father. Um, and, and, and that experience has showed me that my life is not so important as long whatever he decides. Um, and that's what led me to, you know, on this path of my career or activism or whatever I want to call it. But how do I make other women see who are often in manipulative, emotional, abusive relationships where they're told, you, you can't go to a university. I love you too much. <laughs> you can't go to work with those men. They'll harass you. I love you so much. I mean, that is the most typical thing a Libyan man would say to you. I, 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 I love you so much. I can't endure the oxygen that you breathe that goes into your body. <laughs> I mean, they literally, they literally go for cheesy things. It's the combination of the two, right? It's, it's the, I love you so much. And what will people say? Those are the two parallel conversations. Um, and I just think it, yeah, it's that, that power you, you say this sort of this, it's, it's the power dynamic that is, reflected throughout and I'm you know I'm conscious that agency sometimes is interpreted as what we would use it for right like what I would use it for or what you would use it for which is maybe a um, a more political participation or more kind of um, public facing activism but actually agency is also about protecting you at home it's also about protecting you in the workplace it's also about protecting your education so I think it's it is it's hijacking the conversation around women and agency to make it about a very, very narrow topic, whereas actually agency is about a, a lot more. And I think um, I had planned to talk about this later in the episode, but it's, you've, the way you've said it now just really brings it to the forefront is I think that people like donors and partners and the international community have a massive role to pay, play with this. And I'm sure you'll speak to this more than I can, but one of the trends we saw in our research is the disproportionate amount of funding for women's organizations that's linked to UN Security Resolution 1325, which is, again, driving this conversation that that's the only role for women in this context, which is looking at peace and security. And obviously, that's a really important issue. But it suggests that that's the way women are used um, at this current time. And the other resolution, obviously, that is linked to it, which I can't remember what the number is, but I'm sure you know, which is the one about women in fighting counterterrorism um, and the funding around that, which I have a I mean, a whole season's worth of problems with that kind of international setup, which effectively is is operationalizing, weaponizing women for the benefit of men again, because it's saying your role as a woman is to make sure the men don't screw up, right? So, you know, especially the counterterrorism stuff, it's about women as um, as the supporters of men, as the mothers and sisters. And really your role is about making sure your man doesn't screw up instead of you having your own agency. And the fact that so much of the money that's coming to Libya, a disproportionate amount of the money that's coming into Libya on women's work is around those themes, war and conflict, peace and security, counterterrorism, fighting, and all the other stuff that you've been highlighting actually above that, domestic abuse, access to education, economic rights, social rights, dribbles of, of money towards that. And that that not only is problematic because it doesn't deal with the real issues or, well, it doesn't deal with all the issues. It's problematic because it feeds into the same narrative of, you see what we told you when women get power, all they really want is to control the country and the politics and da, 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 and, you know, not about everything, everything else around it. Um, and it's just something that constantly pla like plagues my mind. I don't know how we, how do we address that? Because that can be adjusted if you get the right projects being funded that are looking at the kind of wider issues around women, because, you know, 
I'm also really, and I'm sure you, you are as well, I'm just so bored of this narrative of women as either victims. You know, we're, we're, either, we're either victims of violence or we're the silent group, you know, or we're these saints that need to be protected uh, or these, you know, beautiful, fragile creatures that need to be looked after, as opposed to actually, you know what, agency also means that we could be the bad guys. You know, um, and you need to deal with that as well. And I think it's kind of looking at women as a whole person is is really lacking and saying, you know what, actually, no, um, I'm not suggesting that women should have a place because we're these perfect creatures. I'm just suggesting that women should have a place because we're part of this demographic and we're part of this country. And you have to deal with that. But the narratives over and over again about women, victim, women, fragile, uh, operationalized for men. And then... And then you don't, and all of a sudden, if a woman doesn't fit that pattern, then she is, you know, or whatever, you know, the, or the civil society slot because she's not fitting into the fragile or the or the victim or the silent. Um, and so, you know, I think a part of the conversation we need to have, yes, is amongst ourselves, definitely, and in our homes and in our community, but also really to to really question the agenda of international actors and what they're funding and what they're pushing on the ground and which organizations they're funding, but also what they're forcing organizations to work on, right? Because we know a lot of NGOs who are doing women's work who apply for funding and then they're told by the donor, well, we're happy to fund you, but can you please look at 1325 or whatever the other one's number is instead of the domestic abuse issue you want to work on? Um, And I don't know if you've experienced that in your organization personally, that donors have tried to redirect your work towards something or, you know, like refocus it in some way. that has impeded what you actually want to be doing? Yeah, um, I mean, the reason we haven't grown for years um, is because of that. It's because we say no, or we are not applying for this because uh, it would entail this. And that means it limited our partners to two or three, um, which we could do activities with. And and that's usually the Dutch and the Germans are very good um, in terms of allowing, I mean, we're not, we're even writing the proposals with them, so they're not, even for them, so they're not uh, doing anything on their own um, in terms of setting the agenda. But that's very limited and that's very privileged because I can speak English, I can write in English, I can reach donors. That's not something that a lot of Libyan female-led organizations have access to. Um, and, and no matter how much, I mean, I, I of course, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not doing everything, but I, I mean, I, I do offer to like rights proposals. And I have done it before for organizations. And I'm going to address this because uh, it's connected to international organizations because there's a mistrust amongst society organizations and there's competitiveness among civil society organizations because of these funding uh, limitation pools, because of the friendships and special connections and people who speak English and those who are not, um, who created this rift um, between civil society organizations, uh, th- those who see themselves as grassroots, etc., and see others as agents of UN. And, and I mean, I don't sometimes attend meetings because I don't want to be seen as part of this group to the larger civil society organization. I don't want to be seen as, you know, the friend of representative this or representative that so that I could still work with others. Um, but it's so tricky. I mean, there's so much lobbying and, and politics within civil society itself um, that the dynamic is, is very intricate. And, um, and then we have also the generational uh, conflicts in civil society organizations, especially working on women's rights issues. You have women, whether it's in the union or the, or the organizations led by women um, who are older than, than 
you know, the generation that calls themselves feminists. So those who don't call themselves feminists actively don't want equality, but work on women's rights issues. Um, and that in itself is, is a big conflict because they, um, they are important. I mean, I think, I think age is important for all struggles. It doesn't, I'm not, I'm not per se an ageist, but there is a, a stubbornness about them in, in what they see is right vision for the world that should remain like that and anything else is is uh, has to be excluded and so they exclude young women organizations um, and young feminists from a lot of meetings whether it is with the government or the UN because they're like well they're very young they're very loud they I mean they have they have this Nesawiya agenda I mean <laughs> we can't have them but we will go work on women's rights and and I'm like uh, we need a conference on its own for like a whole six days where we're gonna work on this <laughs> bringing all women from all generation and try to have a manifesto and I think that is a crucial step ahead because if we don't have a manifesto and if we don't agree that our approaches are different and we are diverse and you don't have to be a feminist or you don't have to be that or you can be a radical you can be non radical unless we bring all these political differences amongst us and come up with a manifesto for what we need for women in Libya and what it has to be done it's going to be a mess I mean and um, and and just as there is no leadership in on a national level there is no leadership from the older generation of women I'm very sorry to say this but <laughs> but um, it's they don't yeah, there is no leadership from there as well. And I don't know how, you know, in a context of a society that sees the elders as, as something on a higher step, we'd feel like if they're invited by young people. But maybe it's an experiment we should do anyways. Um, and then judge later <laughs> if it's working or not. That sounds fun. I want to be yeah. at that conference. You will be. <laughs> Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. I've been so immersed in the conversation and in, in listening in that uh, I kind of don't want to interview. I just want to be an audience, you guys. But I do think that it would be interesting, uh, Esma, if you... Um, can just touch on, you know, in, in terms of, again, your own experience working on women's rights, but also in minority rights. And how does that, you know, how, what is the challenge in trying to bring that um, intersectionality and, and, and how, yeah, how, how has that played out uh, with your work on the ground? At the risk of getting into the loophole of using our jargon as feminists, maybe we'll start, we'll ask by starting to define intersectionality, um, um, and what we mean by that, because, yeah, it's, it's one of those words that makes people shudder. It's another feminist word. Intersectionality is simply this, um, I tr as I try to explain it sometimes to people who are unfamiliar with it. Try, try walking in an airport. You're going to catch a flight and go on a specific trip. Uh, you meet people from all colors and races who speak all different languages. And I ask usually people, how are you being treated? What is your passport? What is the color of your skin? How expensive are your clothes? What kind of phone do you have? How, what are your appearances even? And people have so many different answers to that because that's the reality. Because you're not one thing, 
you are a compilation of so many things and you are treated based on all these identities. So I'm not just female, I'm not just activist, I'm not just Libyan, I'm not just brown, I'm also Amazir, I'm also a, a third daughter, a middle child with a lot of siblings, uh, I'm short, <laughs> I have really bad eyesight <laughs> and you know I could go on and on and on and those things um, impact the way you decide things, impact the way you choose things for yourself or for others, the way you interact. Um, and so basically it looks at the social issues that we face in, in this context where I'm speaking of from these different angles. And um, I can't separate being a woman or a feminist from being a Maziri because that's how I've been treated my whole life. Um, whether it's because I spoke bad Arabic when I was a child, because I, I didn't learn Arabic as a child, I learned it at school, or because um, I was told to hide entirely an identity that was the only thing that I had in the house, um, or that I was uh, often threatened with um, being, no matter how much of, of uh, patriotic slogans I could tell, I am always threatened of being an outsider, of someone who's bringing instability, of someone who's vilified. So I'm vilified for all these things, of course, for being a female activist, for being a woman just simply because we are, you know, Eve and apples and all of that. But also <laughs> I'm vilified because I'm not, I'm not subscribing to the Arab nationalist identity, um, which means I'm a threat to security, I'm a threat to everything else. So that kind of conversation is is non-existent to Libya and it's it's non-existent also for black women in Libya who um, are are I mean treated horrendously because you know anyone could stop them on the road and ask where they come from <laughs> even if they were Libyans I mean I've, I've, I have friends who told me such stories um, and so what when when in 2015 there was these discussions of having elections uh, for the Amazigh Supreme Council, um, I was talking to my to my friends Inaz and Zura, who are, who are the co-founders as well. And we were like, um, well, yes, the dudes are being very nice and saying we're going to have 50% quota for seats. But um, where are we in this conversation? And, and what, what, what is happening in this conversation? And there is this, um, there is this double, uh, I don't know how to call it really, because in, in the Amazigh community, you, you are grown up, you are told you're different from the Arabs um, because of ABC. But you are also tr told that you have more rights, um, that you are more equal and that, and that men should listen to you. And it is true in so many families, the hierarchy of men and women is not the same. You can access public spaces where men are talking without anyone raising an eyebrow and you can't speak out whenever you want. And and I grew up around such kind of women, you know, like aunts who went and took their own lands from, from their inheritance and, and who used public shaming and things like that and were loud in the streets. So so I grew up seeing these kind of women. But again, the the indiscrimination and the abuse then is so multi-layered because it's sugar-coated. And while the Arabs are sugar-coating it in, I love you so much, you can't sit with men in a university. Um, it's for us, it's sugar-coated in, what will we have, we, we are, you are equal, you can speak loud, you can access these meetings. Um, yes, but I'm not planning with you these things. 
Um, <laughs> you're just deciding to have 50% quota. Yes, thank you. But I'm, I'm not there to plan. Um, and I'm not saying this in general, because of course, the, 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 the guys in the Amazon movement are very, very supportive and very inclusive. Um, but we had to do it. We had to have this organization or we have to have this sort of um, um, movement to try to bring up the voice that, um, well, we are women, we are, but we're also indigenous and we need to bring that uh, to the table or tables or, or wherever space that is needed. Um, and because it's it's um, and because it's so specific, I mean, in in even between Zwar and Afusa Mountains, there are cultural differences and there are uh, little nuances that makes them so different. Um, in in the south, it's entirely different for for indigenous women who are stateless and don't have any rights whatsoever than for me, who is extremely privileged in in comparison. But we um, we want to be sensitive to that. We want to bring that forth the experience of Tuareg women being nomadic or being in areas where infrastructure is non-existent and state does not exist. And in the, back in the 90s, there were statistics that if Tuareg women would have eight children, four of them are likely to die uh, in her lifetime because the, she has no access to health, um, to a health system, a proper one. She doesn't have access to to um, to, to the, all any services that is around them, besides those, of course, who are stateless and because they marry the cousins over the borders are told to, you know, being traitors and should go over the border as well with them or, or that. How could you marry someone from Chad or how could you marry someone from Niger? I'm like, yeah, but those are the indigenous people of those lands. Of course, we are not even there to talk about the colonial implications of border, of borders around the southern of Libya and how they've divided our people into these little little shards of populations all over the place. We're not talking about colonial Islamism, which is still called Futuhat openings and not addressing all the invasions that have happened, the slavery. So, and that's all what we, we want to do in the future. Hopefully when we can unpack all these things that, yeah, it, the work in Libya is endless. I remember when I, when I swapped, um, when I swapped careers um, from doing more commercial law and then went to requalify as a human rights lawyer um, to set up Lawyers for Justice in Libya. My my father jokingly said that I was doing that to set up a career for life, um, because there's just so much to un, un, unpack and and do uh, to achieve this. Um, gosh, I don't. I, the same thing happened to me that happened to Maru. I don't even know where to take this because I've just I've absorbed so much. But I do want to try and look a little bit at the question because because the Libyan scene is so dominated by international actors. And the processes we're now looking at for transition are, are, you know, the same way that we as women don't have agency in the country because the men make the decisions. Well, we as Libyans don't have agency in the country because the internationals make the decisions. And so in trying to secure more agency for ourselves as, as Libyans, but also as women and um, knowing very well that the, you know, that a big audience of Libya Matters is policymakers in Western capitals. So I feel that we are entitled to speak truth to power to them. Uh, and I feel like I'm in very good company for that today. Um, I would like to just look at that because, so as you know, and I, I was, you know, texting you my grievances from time to time when I was in Geneva. Um, the fun, it, it's such a, you know, the whole political process as it's been unfolding is is so flawed in so many ways, and we are picking it up on 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 different topics that we discussed through the season, but. One of the most fundamentally and apparently flawed ways in, is the way that it's been, been designed 
um, and the and the inclusivity of it. Um, and you will know, and most people who follow it will know that at the time, at the initial time, it was meant to be, um, I think, twenty and twenty that were chosen by the two conflicting sides to to start the political process. And then what was shocking is in those twenty and twenty, there was only I think one or two women because they were part of the political. Actually, I'm not sure there were any women um, that were initially put forward by the what is perceived to be the, the two sides of the Libyan conflict. And it was only then that UN Women, which is a very specialist agency within the UN, and I wouldn't profess to, to say that it's you know in, very similar to the UN more widely, said, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? How can you have a conversation about Libya's future with like literally no women in the room or one or two? Um, and so they effectively got their list and shoved us in. And so I, I'm very conscious of why I was in that room. Um, and I was also very conscious of how we were perceived more or less by the men in that room. I mean, to varying degrees, some of them are obviously allies and and were welcoming and, you know, were, were really, you know, supporting the move. And But others are obviously seeing us as the UN women um, candidates who were brought in by the Westerners to kind of give it some diversity. And, and that's really the end of our role. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, it was really wonderful at the end because the at the time, the, the special representative, Ghassan Salama, came out and said that the women were the best part of it. I'm like, yeah, but you appreciate that even that sentiment and the way that that's phrased is problematic, right? For a man who's leading the process to come out and say, we're so glad we included those women. They were great. Is such a is such a problematic framing to compliment us. But you know what? We're not aiming for the ideal just yet. Let's pause that and put it to the side. Um, and so, you know, I... In a way, it gave me the opportunity within that room to be difficult and to be really loud because I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be invited again. I don't know if I've even seen, I'm being seen as really part of this process. And so I'm going to make sure that all the issues that need to be said are going to be said. And so in a, in a really twisted way, it gave me agency. But it also really, really highlighted how fundamentally flawed the approach is full stop from every level. And so knowing that we are sitting in European capitals at the moment as we have this conversation and knowing that our audience is fundamentally those people, to, well, not fundamentally, to a large part, those people. What, what should they be, what, you know, what the hell are they doing? What should they be doing differently? And let's get this message as clear and as blunt and as difficultly as possible across to them. I will start with Libya and then I'll talk about the, the, um, the way it's designed in general for the UN, which really needs to stop. Um, I think for Libya, they need to stop culturally appropriating us. Just because you've been told by some Libyan men that Libyans are conservative, it does not mean you need to listen to that and do that. I mean, why would you listen to that and not listen to me <laughs> when I come up and I have really good ideas and I have good recommendations and I have... They're hard to implement, Asma. Things that Asma. I could contribute to. <laughs> why would you listen to that, to that it's conservative and it would disrupt the process when you are bringing basically, not all of them, but a bunch of warlords who've committed various kinds of crimes, doesn't have to be human rights violations, but at least corruption, at least that's always on the table. Why would you bring those? And that's okay for a conservative society, which has strong values. I mean, if we have strong values, we won't have a civil war. If we have strong, good values, we won't be killing migrants like that. We wouldn't be treating people who are not Libyans as non-human. If we have good values... I mean, I could go on and on to, to, to describe my agitation with this, but it's insulting to be told to my face that, oh, we didn't invite women because Libyan society is conservative and we didn't want to disrupt the process. I'm like, okay, but your process will fail. 
And I wish I could see the person I've told that now. <laughs> After Sherat has failed, <laughs> I can't see the person. But if you hear me, the process has failed, as you have been told. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking this episode should be called I Told You So. Um, that's kind of where this is going, right? Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this Yeah. The same goes when we were brought in to discuss, as, as, as someone who was also dabbling in academia sometimes, to discuss this conflict in 2020, the, uh, in 2019, the Haftar attack. And a lot of the analysts around me went on and on and on discussing about, you know, the kind of things that might happen. And I'm like, there is no way on, on there is no way historically, socially, politically, that the East could conquer the West in an armed conflict. That's not going to happen. Not just because 90-something percent of armed conflicts fail in formation of states, they always fail, not just not putting that aside, not putting that aside, but because both sides have no political projects. If you don't have a political projects and social backing, regardless of how many people supported Haftar or supported GNA, they both don't have, you know, they don't have social backing. Libyans carry on with their lives without a government. They've always done that. Um, they do that within within their homes. They do that within their neighborhoods. But but the state is always something that provides and it's not something that they engage with. So even if they support this side or that side, it does not mean politically they are backing them. And as long as you don't have people around you, as long as you don't have a leadership for a project that's comprehensive, that solves issues, you don't have anything. You will fail. So of course, my analysis will go overboard because, you know, <laughs> I'm a pacifist <laughs> who wants peace in the country <laughs> and who's not going to talk about, oh, maybe if Turkey has gotten involved or maybe if Russia, you know, backed this up or if maybe France gave more weapons. I'm, I'm like, no, it's not going to happen because you're not conquering Istanbul. You're not conquering Paris. <laughs> you're in Libya. <laughs> you're fighting in Libya over a Libyan project, which you do not have. So you will fail. And this, the way UN process have always been, since they have designed them sometimes in the 80s and 90s, despite empirical research that said you need to change, is to bring troublemakers to the table. When will you end this bullshit? Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> to the listeners, you can cut this off. <laughs> no, it feels appropriate. <laughs> if you know it's never worked, why are you continuing to do this? How were people who are... In mentally, in the zone of zero sum, can come up with an agreement that can solve so many social issues, so many political issues and so many economic issues. They're not even prepared. I mean, they bring them to the table without even a little bit of mediation sessions, without even a little bit of negotiation skills of being told what, you know, the kind of ways that they should, how they could view this conflict. They just bring them as they are from, you know, front lines and, and offices and, and places so far away from, so detached from Libyans who suffer the consequences of their indecisions and inadequacy and their corruption. Um, and we are not there because we don't have the Kleshnikovs. We haven't formed a, a militia in 2011. We haven't taken over a, a, a governmental building. So uh, we don't have anything to say about this. <laughs> but yeah. So when, if we're going to look ahead and think of what we should be thinking about, is that one of your proposals for the manifesto that we <laughs> that we perhaps should kind of form a, 
a kind of an armed element to this movement to, to get to the I'm table. <laughs> if another woman wants to do it, she's welcome. But uh, I won't organize for violence. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me of this really, well, this insightful. I don't know if I've, I've probably told the story a bazillion times. And so you might have heard it, but it, it still kind of rings true to me every time. But one of the very first workshops we did in 2000, actually still 2011, um, we brought in people who were, uh, you know, we we're talking about kind of transition and, and disarmament, et cetera, and, and uh, how you document violations and why it's important to kind of move away from the first civil war we had. Um, and there was this one participant um, who was very quiet, just didn't say a thing the whole week. Um, he was from, uh, from the Western Mountains. And um, had, you know, this, he's, he looked very, you know, very kind of just like he didn't, you know, he wasn't involved. Oh my gosh, he's so unengaged in this. Like, how, how do we even choose this person? He's so disinterested. By the end of, on the last day of the workshop, he kind of came down, he had shaved off his beard and said, you know, I feel like I've learned a lot and this is my symbolic gesture. And I thought, oh, that's really, that's really kind. And he wrote this really kind letter. Then we got back to Tripoli and he said, oh, I'd like to come visit you in your office, to, you know, to say thank you in person. Uh, and I have a small gift for you. And I'm like, oh, you know, really don't, you know, don't, you know, don't come down and have nothing. Like, it's, it's fine. Like, this is my duty. I don't need thanks. Um, anyway, after much back and forth, he was persistent. And I said, well, you know, it's a Friday, so I'm not in the office. But if you want, you can just leave whatever this gift is in the office. Um, and so he came down. And then like a couple hours later, he called. He's like, look, there's a lot of security like in that area. And they're not letting me in to bring the gift. And I'm like, what's the gift? And in a, like a super orientalist moment on my behalf, I was like, is it a camel? Like, what is it that's so big that they wouldn't bring into the center of town, you know, or, the, or like so problematic, you know, in like this, in the situation. And it turned out that he was, he, it was a Kalashnikov. And he was like saying, you know, you liberated me. And so I want to hand this over to you because this is what liberated Libya. And I'm like, oh my God, so much more work to be done. Because I'm like, when I said disarm, I didn't mean to me. I meant disarm yeah. to, to like official authorities. Uh, and he's like, yeah. no, I, I, you know, you, you need, you need to have this. And I remember like, I'm like, really, I don't, I really don't. And please, you know, just take this away and just don't bring it back. Uh, and so the joke has been ongoing in our family that really LFJL is this, you know, armed group that's working covertly and that was when we started mm -hmm. but it's um it is kind of it, it, what you say is absolutely is absolutely the, like it's so boringly textbook that this won't work um it's the kind of thing that was probably one of the first essays we wrote at law school about transitional justice that it doesn't work in this way but you we almost like have to live it to prove it uh in every in every conflict um but I, you still haven't quite answered my question which is what do we need from them like we've told them how bad they are and how bad their policy is, but assuming that we have some people who listen with the with some kind of spirit of learning or wanting to get something out of Libya matters, what is it that they could do differently um, to maybe make Libya an exception to the rule of, of conflict resolution? Um, I think they would have to first do mediations before they start negotiations among groups um, that are involved in the conflict, and that, I mean I mean even including human rights groups, civil society, women. Um, that when you are in a negotiation setting, you need to be mentally prepared to, to be negotiating and compromising. And if that is not understood by anyone, then that's not going to work out because everyone will just go in for the, whatever they want to take from the other. And that will always be a failure for negotiations. Um, and of course, I want to say we need to be there as well, but not to talk about what women need only. 
were also security experts, lawyers, uh, <laughs> engineers, art architects, um, politicians, with so many skill sets that we understand what needs to be done in order to rebuild. And we need to stop having women on panels or in, on tables just to represent women. Yes, I am a woman and I, and I will be there representing the female sex. I don't think that's realistic, but let's say it is. Not now, no, Asma. <laughs> Not after this conversation. <laughs> no, the issue of representation of Libya is another, is another topic in itself. But um, yes, of course, I am also there for that. But not really, because I am there to bring in my experience, my expertise, what I know best, what I have been working on. And for most women, it is like that, unless she has a very, you know, set agenda on, on, on women's issues. Most of the women who go to the table, who even went to Sherat, went for political reasons. They went for polit their political parties. They've been invited by family, male family members. They went for agendas that are not for women. And that's natural, of course, because she has other interests than just, you know, what she looks in in the mirror every day. And the international community has to see that. They has to see that... On that table, you need to bring both. And both will be with different skill sets. And both will bring those skill sets for that sort of thing. And rather than bring them to have general big questions like what women want or what Libyans want, start with the specific because you know what are the issues. You know it's distribution of wealth. You know it's having a political structure. What kind of a decentralized political structure? You already have the questions. You have been hiring researchers for the past nine years <laughs> to know what kind of issues Libya have. And still, you would bring them to the table to ask what Libyans want. I mean, sorry, but what does that even mean? I mean, not to mention that I'm super tired of being told what the women want, but I'm so tired of this general question that I'm like, I've answered so many times. You haven't been listening, so I shouldn't come again. <laughs> Sometimes I don't get invited again because I'm like... You know what? It happens to all of us. I always say that I, I always assume that I'm in every room once. And so I need to get everything out because I'm just like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be invited again. The, the point that you make that I think is so important to just reiterate is this whole idea that women's issues are some kind of alien concept that only exists in this kind of, you know, vacuum and it's women's rights. Or, you know, in, in, in my mind and the kind of the way we try to approach it in our jail, it's like every right is a women's right. There's not a single right that doesn't touch women in a, in a specific way. And it's looking at how you do that. And so women participating in a peace process or, you know, in a transitional process is not just about them talking about these women's issues. It's about the fact that they are a proportion of the population and therefore should have a say on everything to do with that. I mean, I can't believe we're even having to say this on everything to do with that country because they are part of that population and should be represented equally the same way we would, you know, advocate for minorities to have, you know, um, representation and, um, and, you know, indigenous people and every, you know, everything should be kind of, it's so self-evidently obvious. And to be having that conversation, uh, you know, on, in, in, Libya, in Libya, you go, okay, there's a lot of history there. We need, to, we need to have this conversation. It's part of reconciliation to have these conversations. But to be having to explain this to UN missions, that representation is an element of a process, <laughs> mind-blowing, <laughs> that maybe we can just get straight to the debunking the narrative section and I think I'm really looking forward to her reactions on 
Hi, I am Mayad Al-Maki and I work as a senior program officer focusing on legal research. In this LFGL Explains, I'm going to talk about online violence against women. So first, what is online violence against women? It is any act of violence against women that is committed by using information or communication technology such as mobile phones, the internet, social media, or email, and it could amount to a human rights violation. Online violence against women is different from offline violence because it does not involve direct physical harm, although it can develop into physical violence if it continues to persist. That's why often our attitude is to ignore online violence, thinking that we can just turn off our food devices to make it go away, and we only take it seriously when it turns into physical violence. A clear example is a case of the human rights lawyer Salwa Bugegis, who initially faced online violence but later developed into physical violence when she was assassinated. Online violence is a is a concern in itself because it has a profound impact in silencing and closing civil society space for women, as well as personal impacts such as trauma, anxiety, and fear. This leads us to an interesting legal question. Can these impacts amount to torture? If so, what can we do to address it and who is responsible? These are the questions we are looking at. If you, or a woman you know, has been the target of online violence, we would want to hear from you. Women actually have no interest in politics. Uh, okay, I shouldn't just groan. <laughs> that might be all we need. <laughs> Sorry, dear speaker, questionnaire, whatever. Everything is politics. Amazing. Okay. There are traditions in Libya that should not be disturbed. Yes, like, yes, like corruption, like uh, having um, nepotism, like um, harassment, um, segregation, racism and discrimination yeah these are all things i would like um you know to, to not be touched in libya they, they exist there forever so why shouldn't we have continue to have them sarcasm <laughs> it's palatable it's it's palate like the sarcasm is palatable okay i'll give i'll do one more and the the will to include women in the national and international level is met by complete disinterest by libyan women and so there's no there's no one to engage with i would like to see the numbers on that do you have those signatures that said no <laughs> Because that's participation in itself, but I would like to see those numbers. You know what, Asma, thank you so much. You're the only person who's actually done this properly. Um, we always like, we end up having these kind of, you know, long, long conversations, but you've just beautifully, sarcastically, flippantly shown how pointless these uh, statements are. Thank you so much. Is there, a, is there a question you really wanted us to ask you that we didn't? But I actually didn't address the fact that... Um, being activist and mother, and I think Elham, you could you could answer that, not me. But that's an element of activism we haven't addressed, and it's very important. It's a funny one. I mean, we touched about it before we started the recording, but I think it's one of those things that when I found out I was pregnant, I was all of us. I was excited. I was happy. Then I was like, oh my god, I've got to raise a human being to be an effective member of society. Like that was literally kind of, you know, part of me went, oh, I really want to have a girl so I can, you know, raise a, a, you know, an incredibly strong woman who can take on the world. And then a part of me goes, actually, if I had a guy and I could raise a guy to understand feminism really well, then that would be, that would be pretty great as well. Um, I don't profess to have cracked this at all. It's a learning curve. And I'm, I'm, I'm reminded regularly by my daughter that I'm still have a lot to learn uh, on, on things, but um, it does all I will say is that it makes me, um, not to gender this at all, but it does it does make the activism seem much more real to me personally. I'm not suggesting that it's not for more urgent. And I don't and I I, I don't 
I don't like talking about that because it just sounds like, oh, you know, unless you're a mother, you don't think about the future. It's just a really weird narrative, but it, there's, it's, it's almost an unpleasant panic that I feel um, that I have, I have work to do. So she doesn't have to go through what I went through and what other women went through and what Libyans have gone through. And also, you know, there's this other parallel of trying to raise a child as an activist in the diaspora. And I think that's another element, right? It's trying to build a bond and a connection of her to Libya and for her to understand. Um, and I don't want it to be a lot of what we grew up of talking about the olden days from our parents. And, you know, we, you know that's why you should care about Libya. It's much more that you, we need people like you to have energy to take this fight because we ain't going to be done anytime soon <laughs> with this. And so a part of me is thinking of her not as a daughter, but as a recruit, you know, and that my biggest fear in life, though, is she, re the, all, we, all of us rebelled against our parents somehow. Um, and my fear, she'll rebel by being like a super conservative. That's my fear. Inshallah khair. We'll see what happens. It's it's a, it's increasingly an interesting topic for me because because people are, you know ask you all the time, of course, when are you going to have children? But also because I'm like I'm so consumed by my work, I actually don't think about at all this whole you know having children part. But if I would have it, how would it be? I don't, I don't, I don't assume to like know at all what what you have, what you're feeling. But I have now a baby nephew, and I, when I look at him, and he's in Libya, I would be like, "Gosh, I do want to make this better soon, soon, so you won't grow up in the same, <laughs> in the same, in the same environment I did." So, um, yeah. So it's it's uh, it's a topic we should talk about more. Uh, the legacy we leave for the for the young Libyans. No, it's a it's an interesting one, and it's an awkward one because as a feminist, you feel like I I don't want to talk about that because you know it makes me it, it puts me into that like bubble of woman 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 mother woman mother but it's true it's it's kind of reappropriating that as well right it's it's kind of it, it it's part of the narrative to take away that kind of power as a woman and as a mother to say to be a woman and a strong woman I have to ignore that side wow I feel um I feel enriched and I feel like I need to go away and think a lot more about my parenting thanks Asma um and thank you so much. And if you, if you, when you do write your book, I think the title should be Eves and Apples because that was beautifully put <laughs> when you said that. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, really, always. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tariq Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Malyanu, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS.